it takes a lot of independence going against the mainstream. Yeah, you cannot be just a shill for the company. And what keeps you not being a shill, but yet loving the company? I love the company, but I felt very strongly that the more good the company did, it could help the company grow. So I didn't see a conflict. That's our job as leaders of sustainability in the company. We don't go with the status quo. It is about implementing change. These are the things we're talking about. Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you, hear their struggles, and then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public, personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. Let's start with some personal context. I last ate meat in 1990, which would have been about the last time that I spent any money in McDonald's. I avoid packaged food. I avoid food with fiber removed for something like four years and counting. I pick up a piece of trash per day and McDonald's is up there a little behind Coca-Cola and Starbucks as the greatest sources of, of that garbage on the street. I've watched the McLeibel documentary multiple times. I stopped in a McDonald's the other day to charge my laptop and one of the closest ATMs to my home is in a McDonald's. So I find myself in them periodically. I don't like the place, but I got an email that Bob Langert, who's their former head of corporate social responsibility, wrote a book on his experiences there over the course of decades. From my perspective on change, I see places like McDonald's, Coca-Cola, Exxon, Monsanto, to name a few, as the places with the greatest potential. Many protest places like these, and in my younger days, I certainly did, and I consider such actions important, but I also believe that they need help. So I read the book and scheduled to meet with Bob. My goal is to understand the man and his experience for opportunity for more change. I took more notes on his book than any other, a lot of them critical, I opted in this conversation to meet the man, not debate or criticize. If you think I should have acted otherwise, let me know. My goals, as ever, are regarding the environment to lower our effects that threaten life and human society, and on leadership for people to find meaning, value, importance, purpose, joy, growth, and so on in the actions, not just to comply to what other people tell them. So let's listen to the conversation. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Bob Langer. Bob, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Josh. Thanks for having me on. Glad to have you here. And I want to give a little background. I, people, have, by the time they've clicked here, they know that you're the head of corporate social responsibility at McDonald's. You've retired, I think, three or four years ago. Is that right? Four years ago, almost. And you were there for decades before that, leading up to that role. 33 years at McDonald's, started heading up a version of social responsibility in the late 80s. Yeah. And so I want to frame, I think some people would probably say, why is a show that has environment in the title, why do they have someone from McDonald's? And I've been doing this for a little over a year, and I constantly get people saying to me, Josh, I know the perfect person to have on your podcast. It's this person who started the sustainability program or this recycling program or this composting program. And I'm happy for them that they say that to me, but it's as if everyone hears the environment part and no one hears the leadership part. And I want to bring leaders from all sorts of different areas. I've said, I hope people have gotten, I've said in lots of episodes, 
there's a lack of effective leadership, in my opinion, in the area of the environment. And so I want to bring people from lots of different areas. And lately, I've been starting to get attention from companies that come to me and they say, we hear how you help people share their environmental values and act on them. And we need that in our companies. And we, could you work with our leaders? And oh, so I've been telling people, I want to work with the heads of the leaders of places that are the, the opposite of the end of the spectrum. So places like Exxon, this is the way I see it. Things so I don't, I don't want to like, you know, so Coca-Cola, when I walk around and I pick up garbage off the streets, like Starbucks and Coca-Cola and Gatorade, I see a lot of that. And I want like the heads of these companies and leaders from those areas. And I feel a bit like the dog that chased the car. And like, now I caught the car and I'm starting to talk to these people and I'm starting to see it as a new beginning. But uh, I'm bringing people in that are outside my world. And I think outside the world of most environmental podcasts, but I think it's very important. I think the largest changes are available in these areas. And you've written a book about changes. And so when your book came across my, my email feed, I thought, this is what I'm looking for. I want to talk to people like this. And that's the frame. And also my background, I haven't eaten meat since 1990. I haven't eaten in a McDonald's since soon after that. And so I feel like there's going to be, there might be a bit of a tension. I'm not sure, but I want, as a leader, I want to connect with people and find out who these people are and what's going on. So sorry if I talked too long to start this off, but how does that sound to you? Or maybe we, you can tell us a little bit about yourself and why you wrote the book. And if you haven't said this too many times on too many other podcasts already. Well, well thanks for having me on, Josh. And uh, I like your setup. You know, I think this is a very complicated uh, subject. I worked for McDonald's for 33 years. And, and believe me, I received, I represented the company publicly as well. So uh, a lot of people didn't like us. You know, we had a lot of uh, missiles and uh, attacks and campaigns and books and movies and I mean, when Fast Food Nation paints us as the kind of the evil side of food, it does not make you feel good. And uh, which leads to one of the reasons I wrote the book. The way that we're described publicly in a lot of the stereotypes about McDonald's, what we are, who we are, why we do things, I, I felt like people never understood it. So I wanted to bring you, the reader, into McDonald's, like in real time. The way I wrote the book, it's not academic, it's not technical, it's storytelling. And really what I was trying to do is just, okay, I'm going to bring you in. When Greenpeace attacks us on, you know, causing further deforestation in the Amazon because our suppliers are using too much soy and uh, we're a bad actor there, I want you to know what happens, why Greenpeace did what they did. I interviewed 51 people in the book, how people within McDonald's think about it and how we approach the pros and cons, what the conflict points were and what the decisions were. And then you can judge for yourself as to whether McDonald's did a good thing or, or a bad thing. All I can tell you is that I wrote the book to kind of show the real world. And I think the journey that we were under was fascinating. Like, I would want a lot of people just to read the book for fun and entertainment. Like, what's it like to be in this mega brand with all these attacks on you? Now, the second purpose of my book, though, was I thought... I struggle to be a leader in the sustainability space. It's not easy. That's why I call it the battle to do good. It sounds like a negative term, sort of, but uh, I view it as a positive term. Every day I went into work, I'm like, hey, I'm a tennis player. So I, I want to win. I want to attack. I want to beat the other player. I have to think of all the challenges. It's not easy to win a tennis match. That's how I look at things in my work at McDonald's. It's like, okay, we're going to go after sustainable fish. We're going to try to develop an animal welfare program. 
there's a lot of resistance to all this stuff. There's, there's resistance on anything in the corporate world, and it change. You mean internal resistance? Yeah, internal resistance, supplier resistance. It's a you study leadership. It's one of the most natural states of a human being. It's not just no change. <laughs> mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, so that's what I wanted to write about. Uh, you tell me, and if the readers read my book, you tell me if I achieved it. And if you think about McDonald's a little bit differently, I kind of hope you do. I think I went to work there 33 years unless I liked the company, liked the people. And I thought we made some changes that really helped transform certain things in the world. So my mom is from South Dakota and I was reading this book and I was like, this is a Midwesterner. (laughs) This is like a very salt of the earth. It's like, it did not read as a, like, it was clear you had retired from McDonald's because it was, it didn't read like a corporate book. It read like, and I was kind of curious as I was reading, I was thinking, why is this guy putting himself out there? Because I have to imagine you're going to take a lot of criticism. From who? From people who are not, well, okay. You, the book t- describes a lot of criticism that you guys took along the way from, from McLibel, from PETA, from EDF, but then EDF worked. I mean, obviously it, it tells about how you worked with a lot of these places. And I thought the book was, I thought you were writing it a lot for future or current CS or corporate social responsibility people to show this is what we went through because probably most places aren't going to face the, the frictions that you did. And they're, they're mostly not operating on the scale that you did. And so I thought the readers were going to be people who were following in your footsteps, whether intentional or not, that this is like a set of case studies for them to learn from. Because you gave a lot of, like each chapter ends with how to, like here's, when you're in a situation like this, here's what to do. But most people aren't in corporate social responsibility for large corporations. And I thought you were portraying like this, look, there's a lot of companies out there that take a lot of heat for whatever the cause of the situation, people want them to change and they could learn from you. That's where I thought it was coming from. And there's a, a trend that I saw in the book that was at the beginning, I felt like you were being very reactive and oftentimes someone would come in and say stuff. And I mean, you would make early partnerships with individuals and with organizations that works very well. And th- those are models for the future. But also you would be surprised and caught off guard. And by the end of it, you were talking about finding things before the public came to you. And so you're going from reactive to proactive. That's the arc of the journey, Josh. You captured it uh, perfectly. The, the journey, and I, I start the book in, uh, I start the book, I think, in 1990 with McDonald's being a symbol of waste and a symbol of disposable society and reacting to this new societal issue that McDonald's was never criticized by society before. I mean, here you had this great company for, what, over 30 years, because it started in 1955. It was, it was Ronald McDonald. Everybody welcomed us into the community. Every, everybody loved McDonald's. So here we are in the late 80s. All of a sudden, we're attacked. And uh, it's, it's really interesting looking back. We're a Midwestern company. I grew up in Chicago. I'm a Midwestern guy. There's no doubt about it. So you captured that. And we're like, why are these people attacking us? We're a good company. We have good ethics. We're good people. They're wrong. We're right. So that's the beginning of the journey, you know, that, uh, yeah, we were very reactive. And I tell the story of basically these reactionary instances. And then how did we respond? In some ways, we responded really well. Hey, we found a great partner in the Environmental Defense Fund to figure out how to reduce waste. We ended up getting a White House award. We get attacked on animal welfare left and right. 
oh, my goodness, I described it in the book. But then I go to the uh, egg-laying facilities and find out that PETA's right. These, these laying hens are crammed into these cages. It's horrible. And uh, so then he decided, hey, you know what? We need to change this too, which we did. You know, we ended up making dictates with the suppliers to have it be bigger. Eventually, McDonald's recently went to cage-free eggs. So you can see the evolution started out as reactionary. And then over time, starting ooh, probably about 2010, 2011, finally our management team, I wish we had done it 20 years ago, they started seeing these issues of corporate responsibility and sustainability not as something to fix and stay out of trouble. We started to see it as a whole management team as something, well, this, is, this could actually help our business. We can grow our business. We can attract more customers. We developed a business case and became more proactive. And it, probably the best example is we basically were the main stimulus to create a sustainable beef movement. Nobody's asking, nobody was campaigning against McDonald's to, to go with sustainable beef. Nobody's, no customer said, I want a sustainable Big Mac. But we felt that's the number one thing. One of the number one things we can do to match up with our role in society and grow our business was beef. Hey, we're a beef company. Beef is a big issue in society. Let's go after that for the benefit of our business and to benefit society. That's, that's the journey that I described in the book and, uh, and I think a lot of companies. I think probably most Fortune 500 companies have a similar journey. And that's what I want to bring the reader into. You know, I did write the book for the sustainability professional. If you pick the center of who I want to read the book, and that's why I put these hard knock nuggets in there, et cetera. But I want to reach an audience of your, of your, of the people that listen to your broadcast, the people that maybe don't understand McDonald's and, and uh, or don't even want to understand McDonald's. I want to bring you in and whether you like it or not, McDonald's is a universal, it's mega, it's big, it serves 70 million people a day, it's in 120 countries, and it employs uh, 1.7 million people. So it's a huge fabric of society that I wanted a broader range of people to understand. So the role of corporate social responsibility, or the role of your role, were you the first head of it? Or I mean, you, I forget all the there are a lot of names in the book. You are really, this is the insider view and you're talking about the individual relationships. But I feel like when you started the role of thinking about the environment or I guess corporate social responsibility was not at McDonald's and now it's bigger than it was before. And is it also a place of continually growing importance within McDonald's and other corporations from the insider view? Like it, it sounds like it from the outside. Yes. I think what happened in the McDonald's journey is we, uh, I described how we were reactive, but we had a culture. Our culture uh, was good culture. We, we always believed in doing the right thing. We had people that cared. We made a lot of improvements over time because, uh, not because of strategy, you know, per se, but uh, the, the fact is we wanted to do some good work. I think over time, people began to uh, change. Uh, new leadership. I mean, let's face it, uh, younger people have these values, you know, much more than maybe the generation I was in. Although I describe in my book, I, I grew up in the 60s and I really feel that the whole social revolution during the 60s is I always considered myself an activist. And uh, so when this job came available to me, it's like, holy cow, I have an activist heart. Now I get to be in a big company to forge change. So uh, it was just a dream come true for me. But I think over time, 
uh, at McDonald's, people start start to see the upside of being a responsible company. Whereas before, companies like McDonald's, and I think very similar to other companies, all they saw was a downside. They saw, okay, well, it's going to cost money. It's uh, it's the customers really care. Our customers going to pay more. You've seen all that, so it was filled with this negative imagery or negative consequences. And what shifted was, oh no, we see this as an opportunity to, uh, if we can be more green, if we can be more environment, better with the animals, we're going to be more relevant. We're going to be more cool. We're going to attract more customers. I mean, one of the big things in McDonald's, people, you might think people go to McDonald's every day, but the average customer goes there 2.5 times a month. So a lot of our strategy was, well, how can we bring in another visit to a customer or that customer brings a friend? Maybe you'll come back to McDonald's after you know learning about it more to visit it one time a month. That's going to register a lot of sales from McDonald's and make us a more successful company. So the evolution was more opportunity, less about risk and staying out of trouble. I remember a chief communication officer often said, "Hey, let's just let's just be caught doing good. You don't want to be too proactive about this stuff because, by the way, no company is perfect. Every time you tell something you do." you definitely can find something we are doing that's not perfect. I wonder for people who are listening to this podcast who are aspiring leaders in environmental areas, because what I want to say, I believe that the opportunities to take leadership roles are much greater by forging new things. I mean, however far you've come, I think you would agree McDonald's is it's not near its potential in sustainability, that you, there's a lot more that the company could do. And even if it's not McDonald's, there are plenty of companies that, where that is the case, where everyone knows that they've a long, they have a lot more to reach their potential. And I think the, the path to influence, to make, to help companies reach that potential is not a well-worn path that exists because we haven't been in this situation before. And therefore, to, if people are listening to this podcast thinking, how can I take a leadership role in the environment, then the role that you helped begin at McDonald's is available in many places. And I think you, that it's, a, it's an opportunity to lead. It's an opportunity to make a difference. But it's also not on most people's horizons. I think most people, because everyone thinks when they think environmental, Greenpeace and PETA and whatever. And actually, you've worked with them. I haven't worked with them. So you say PETA. Do they say PETA or PETA? I, PETA. <laughs> PETA. Okay, so uh, now I know. It's funny. How do I know how to pronounce PETA? From the guy from McDonald's. <laughs> but they don't think of going to the places where like they think of one place they want to work at and one place they want to protest. But I think there's not a middle ground, but it's, it's taking leadership roles in places where people haven't done it before. And I, I was reading a book to see like what opportunities are there to, for the next step. Hey, if you're going to change the world, I mean, if I, if I was, uh, you know, 18 years old and uh, had this vision of changing the world, I would advocate that that person consider a pathway similar to what I did. I mean, where are you going to change the world? Are you going to change it through governments? You know, I would hypothesize not. Government's probably one of the biggest problems in all the things I dealt with. You know, we, we had a, McDonald's became almost a de facto regulator because, hey, the government's not enforcing the, the laws in the Amazon. The government's not enforcing uh, Indonesia palm, you know, palm extraction uh, methods. So McDonald's has to come in with our own ways of having standards to do that. Even animal welfare, believe it or not, there's not a whole lot of standards for animal welfare. So McDonald's had to be the one to set up measurements to animal welfare. So, you know, I would argue that if you're going to change the world, 
man, join a big organization, even an organization that you don't think has a good profile on the environment or being socially responsible because you have to change that. Now, one of the revelations that came up in my book, it took me four years to write, poured my heart and soul into it. I was wondering about that gap between when you retired and when the book came out. So I started was- writing this book almost the day that I retired because I felt, I really felt the calling. This was not like, I felt the calling to share this experience. That's how deep and emotional it was for me. And uh, one of the things that I started to realize as I was getting it, it was not the easiest process for me to write the book. And I began to realize how change happens. A lot of our conversation is about change. And that's what struck me. Almost everything I worked on at McDonald's was something that was a change. Some of it was a big change. And almost all of it was never done before. And almost all of it, had tons of resistance, and almost every change that we made, by the way, change takes three, five, seven years for big change. You got to have a lot of uh, patience to see it all through and persistence and passion. I talk about the three P's in my book, and that's really kind of how I operate. Passion, persistence, patience. You need that to forge uh, leadership. But almost all change takes a lot of time. And then you find out that the change you made, which was very controversial, seven years ago, is the norm in the industry seven years later. And I find it to be the case with almost everything I did. So then you realize, well, I I gave you the laying hand example already. The egg suppliers were horribly mad at McDonald's for saying, who's McDonald's to dictate how we should raise laying hands for eggs? That's how they Mm -hmm. felt. McDonald's had 27 suppliers of eggs. Didn't it shock you when you read the book that all 27 of those suppliers said, we don't want to do business with you anymore? And McDonald's buys 2% of the eggs in the world. They're getting rid of one of the largest customers that they have, probably the largest customer. And they said, we don't want to do business with you. That's how mad they were. Those standards that we implemented were standard for the entire industry five years later, such that today we're talking about cage-free. We're not talking about larger cages. But see how... Almost everything I can point to, that change, controversial, becomes the norm, which gets into leadership. You know, I came up with these eight, I identified eight kind of thought, eight attributes of leadership that I think forges change, and I described them in the book. And they, they weren't on my menu as I was going through. But I go, man, I wish I knew everything that I know now about it. Isn't writing a book a tremendous experience? Like. I kept, sorry to interrupt, but I kept missing all these deadlines. And I wasn't missing deadlines. I made the deadline and then I was like, you know, for the last round of substantive edits, I was like, some things bubbled up that I always knew that they were there, but then writing them, I was like, it really crystallized. And I was like, this is really important. So I was like, I'm going to miss this deadline, but I chose to because it was so important and you learn so much by writing. So sorry, I had to, you just touched on something that was relevant for me in the past couple of weeks or months. So that's, that's my biggest revelation in the book. And uh, that's why the book changed in how I wrote it over time. And I, I want to get into uh, how to make change happen. It's much more about the how, because people could have great ideas about how to change the world, but it's the special person that could take the idea and actually make it happen. So I always talk about the how of sustainability, not, not the why. Uh, so how do you do it? And you do it through people. So I, I ended up featuring the people in the book much more than I thought I would. Because at the end of the day, uh, yeah, I did a lot of stuff in McDonald's. I'm a cheerleader. I'm a catalyst. I'm a nudge. I'm a critic inside. You know, I do lots of different things. But at the end of the day, it's not going anywhere unless the head of supply chain says, I want sustainable beef in McDonald's, you know, 
the, the head of supply chain that said yes to that laying hen decision, Tom Albrecht. And he saw in front of him that's going to cost $17 million a year for McDonald's. He didn't blink an eye. He said, you know what, we're going to do it because it's the right thing to do. Those things, you know, make me very proud to work with people that are willing to make such uh, courageous decisions. And that decision, what year was that? Because I feel like that's uh, like that was a culmination of a lot of... 2001. And that was kind of at the beginning of our animal welfare journey uh, back in 2001. And that journey still goes on, as you know. So of all the things... Th- gestation stall issued another chapter, you know, how, how pigs oh, are. The, yeah. It's, it's a similar issue and a similar resistance. And it's uh, something that's currently going on. Yeah, some of the things I couldn't believe, it was really, um, I think it was a forklift operator or something with the sow. And it was like, these things happen. Before I hit the record button, we were talking a bit of, of uh, the perspective of, I mean, if I could change the past, I would love to change a lot of things. As far as I can tell, I can't change the past. And as a leader, I think you have to look at where you are and where you can go and who you're with and things like that. And I guess there were a lot of things at McDonald's. You guys had one set of values and you were caught off guard when people with different sets of values would come your way. But then it was surprising how, well, now I guess a, a lot of times people come in and say, you guys are blah, blah, blah. And you're like, what? And then you look and you're like, oh my God, we are. So that was very honest for you in the book. Some of the stuff is though, it's like hard to imagine how, how could someone, I mean, I guess if your deal is you want to be a smiling, bright face to children and so forth and obesity is off on the far, it's not, it's not on an, an, an horizon. Then I guess it's, you're just not thinking of taking responsibility for upstream on your supply chain because you're just, bu- you're just one buyer from them. You know, like one of the guests on the show, Lorna Davis works with the CEO of Danone. So they do a lot of packaged goods and they, they're taking responsibility for things upstream and downstream that are outside of their control. And yet they're taking responsibility for it. And it sounds great on the one hand, but the fact that they're doing it now means that they weren't for ever before, which means that people weren't doing it and people get really angry. And I think, Anger has its place, but I don't know how effective it is. Anyway, this is me kind of musing because it brought me into a world that I, that I hadn't thought of before. And if I want to empathize with the people that I'm working with. Well, that's one of the evolutions that's in the book, uh, Josh, is what you described. Uh, the whole s- supply chain is a huge issue for all these companies. And you do wonder why, like early on, I used the example in the book, I mean, Nike. And, I mean, Nike, did, they didn't think they had much of a problem with uh, the way they were producing shoes overseas and they were very defensive at the beginning and so many companies that's why you know like why didn't they figure that out sooner the same with mcdonald's i mean it just it just wasn't the norm you know whether like you say you can't change the past it just wasn't the norm to feel like you're responsible for things that are five steps removed from from your supply chain and that was the mcdonald's experience i mean we bought meat from a company that simply buys meat from a slaughterhouse they receive it and make it into patties for many years, that was our mindset. Our supplier is just the supplier that makes the meat patties. And then you learn that over time, no. By the way, our customers think that we're responsible for the whole supply chain, from where the cow begins or where the egg begins or you know, where the lettuce is grown. And by the way, customers write about that. We are responsible for that whole supply chain. But it wasn't the thinking... You say that now, years, but... It, the- wasn't 20 years, it wasn't 20 years ago, but that's that's... You look at any issue in society, that's people learn and then you need to, once you learn it though, you know, don't resist it and get, get right into it and react to something that you're learning. And, and I mean, even today, as I look around, Josh, at all these companies that kind of make mistakes and it's in the newspaper every day, 
don't you see resistance you know to it in general don't you see corporate speech and lawyers getting involved and i'm like hey let's just openly say that this is a that's what happened to me it's like hey PETA says the cages are bad we agree greenpeace says there's too much soya farming in the amazon i call them up and told them we agreed with them they were shocked so rather than being campaigning against us we ended up working together and i tell the story in the book that three months later a whole moratorium was announced because we worked together and got other retailers to sign on, got Cargill to help us out, one of the big traders. And isn't it amazing when you recognize a problem, you don't resist, you work together, you see the other people as human beings. I took a trip through the, uh, I always wanted to be where the action is. I mean, I took a trip with the Amazon with Greenpeace. There's four people from McDonald's, four people from Greenpeace. I felt we were all in one club, Josh. I, I didn't, I felt like if you were there, and there's no name tags on us. I'm not sure that you would know who's from Greenpeace and who's from uh, McDonald's. And that's my view of the world. That's my view of uh, working these things out, that we're all in this together. We're all kind of equal. We all care. Let's forge a, a way to work together. And these are some of the, the battles that turn into really uh, great fulfillment, you know, that I try to describe in the book. I feel like that's the end point of the book. But in the middle of it, there's over and over again, you would say, how can we do X with the upstream suppliers that's, that's outside of our control? And over and over again, it's like, oh, it turns out that we do, we can influence them in ways that we didn't expect. I guess at the end, you're saying, now we are leading them and we're taking leadership roles. And I guess you want to show that it wasn't so easily learned. And hopefully the next people who are following in your footsteps don't have to, they can learn from your mistakes and not have to, they can right off the bat say, just because we're, okay, maybe we're a big buyer, but there's many others. But at the end, you're not saying that. But it's still each time you had to like, you had to learn that a lot because many times you would say in the book, I can't remember the details, but you would say people think that we're in charge of all the stuff and we're not, whether it's this ingredient or that ingredient or the the store operators, they're all franchises and so forth. But then if you do take responsibility, then you are able to do more than you thought. I, I guess that's one of the main points of your book is if you're company X and people are attacking you and you're saying, but you have to understand, we, there's only so much we can do. Probably better off to start off by saying, what can we do? Well, what I try to describe, uh, I think you got it right, Josh. First of all, it's very hard. So when it's very hard to work on these issues upstream, it's not easy uh, for McDonald's to make the, uh, the try to change the way that mother pigs are raised. Is again, five steps removed. Our suppliers and their suppliers and their suppliers actually don't work on how cells are raised. It's the fifth supply chain value chain down the road, it does it. So to just say we're going to change the way pigs are raised may sound simple to, to a consumer, but it's very difficult. So, okay, that's, it is hard. And then you, if you have a mindset that sustainability is just kind of a problem and something to kind of manage risk-wise, you're not going to work on all these things. What I'm trying to tell you is that, yes, McDonald's, sort of had that mindset for a long time. So do most companies. So even today, and that's my message for today, there's there's so many, McDonald's finally recognizing a journey that it's, you don't have to be reactive. How long do you want to sit back and take all this stuff and let other people define who you are and let other people define your priorities? Why not take a stand, develop a strategy, work with stakeholders, understand what is most important for your business and most important for society, set ambition, goals, and measurements. And that's what we did. And I think what McDonald's picked out, if you were to study it today, are the right things for the intersection between business and society, helping the business grow, 
helping society at its highest level, win-win. But there's still too few companies doing it because it requires a lot of effort and it requires the company to recognize this as an opportunity versus a problem. So there's a lot of things I want to follow up on. There's no way I can both keep this podcast short enough that people will listen to it and cover all the things I want to. There's one thing you said earlier, if people want to make a difference, join a big company. And I could not, in my mind, I was like knee jerk of like, I want to work with big companies, but I don't want to, I'm sure, yes, for many, joining big companies is, is a great path. But to me, I think the, well, I thought when you get into company, you start, you start becoming part of, you start. You're part of the system. Huh? That may be the case. But what I was going to say is you, you start becoming part of that culture and you're going to see things a certain way and you're going to be blind to seeing things other ways. I'm not saying good or bad. Well, let's see. I guess, you know, it's difficult for someone to understand something when their paycheck depends on not understanding it. I think well, that's Upton Sinclair, I think. So that's like relevant to me. And I haven't worked for a big company in a long time. Let me look on to what you just said there. And that's one of the biggest lessons in this book is uh, if you're going to be a leader to lead change in a company, you, uh, it requires something different in terms of leadership. You have to be the person in the room that represents society. You have to be able, I always operate it uh, as if McDonald's, uh, welcome, you can fire me tomorrow. Uh, that's how I felt. That's how strongly I felt about what I was trying to push for. And it gave me the freedom, you know, not to be a jerk in the company, because you're not going to get anything done being a jerk in the company. You have to have teamwork and collaborate. But at the end of the day, I described how I was an activist at heart. And uh, I just fought so hard for these changes. You have to be willing. I, I tell the story in the book about the apple pickers in Florida and the Coalition of Mopley Workers campaigning against McDonald's. They had a very good campaign <laughs> uh, against McDonald's for paying the workers a penny a pound. And as usual, as I investigated it, I went down to, you know, south of uh, Naples where all the tomatoes are picked. And I actually picked tomatoes and brought them to the truck. And I did about an hour of that. And I'm like, my goodness, this what they're paying these people and their living conditions, it was horrible. So I was definitely an advocate in the company that we changed this, but I was pretty much the only one. And it takes a lot of courage to stand in a room when you, know, you go around the room and say, you know what, I don't agree with this as a company. We should be doing this. When the supply chain leader writes to CEO saying, let's stick with our current plan and not change anything. And I end up writing a letter to the CEO saying, no, I don't agree. Here's my point of view. I knew it was going to cause a lot of pain and suffering for me <laughs> and my relationships with supply chain, which it did because they, they thought I betrayed them as not being part of their team. But I stood up for that. And the company decided to go ahead with this uh, agreeing with the coalition of Maki workers. So it takes a lot of independence going against the mainstream. Yeah. You cannot be just a shill for the company and what keeps you not being a, shill, but yet loving the company. I love the company, but I felt very strongly that the more good the company did, it could help the company grow. So I didn't see a conflict. I, I felt that's, that's our job as leaders of sustainability the company. We don't go with the status quo. It is about implementing change. These are the things we're talking about. I want to go to, there's a trend that I saw in the book. I'm now changing topics a bit just because I want to cover a lot of different things. A common trend happened that you guys people would find out that something was happening. It could be clamshells that were polluting. It could be phthalates, I hope I'm saying it right, in the, uh, in the plastics, or it could be the sows, or it could be the eggs. And let me give some context first. I went to this conference in November called The Summit. The Summit is like, they 
they say that, envir- that uh, sustainability is a very important thing for them. And one of the things they did was they provided bottled water that was in bottles that had significantly less plastic in them than your standard bottled water. And so they sent out an email maybe last week, which is why it's fresh in my mind, that said, this is how much plastic we saved. And to me, I haven't used a plastic bottle for uh, probably at least 10 years. And so I don't compare it to how much they've saved. I don't see that every bottle was an unnecessary use. And by the way, I went to one of the things I went to, I went past a water fountain, bone dry. No one's using the water fountain that wouldn't use any bottle at all. And I took pictures of this and I put it on my, on my blog. So I would say there were, every bottle that they gave out was that was pollution, not saved pollution. And so a lot of the things that you guys wrote about, I would say, all right, you guys are doing something that people have a problem with. And now you've changed it. And you, by, if you compare then to now, there's been a big improvement. But if I compare it to what I would do, it's still a huge, it's still a lot of waste. And that standard, to, so to me, when you asked earlier, like, what criticism would you take? Well, people have different standards who could say, okay, you've changed this, but there's still a long way to go, to put it uh, politely, I guess. Let's We're- take into an example, Josh. Let's uh, debate this a little bit more to, to figure out the context, because I totally understand where you're coming from. I just had a friend of mine say the same thing to me, saying, well, you're, you're talking about continuous improvement. You're not really talking about transformation. So, so it depends what your values are, doesn't it? I think yeah. so. so let's, take, let's take beef. Beef is uh, full of controversy. Now, I would say, here's my case, and then you tell me your case. I would say, okay, beef, lots of impacts in the world, health, greenhouse gas emissions. By the way, for McDonald's, the carbon footprint for McDonald's is about 75% comes from supply chain, of which almost 80% comes from livestock. So if there's something... So when I look at that issue, I go, wow, for McDonald's to be transformative, why wouldn't it make its number one priority to make beef more sustainable? And by the way, if we make beef more sustainable, we're not just doing it for McDonald's because we're, we're buying beef from the industry. It requires an industry. There, there's not just a little bit of suppliers that supply McDonald's. We buy from the industry. Mm-hmm. So we're changing the industry. So if 10 years from now, which is my vision, by the way, you know, McDonald's announced uh, sustainable beef that they would start buying it as an idea back in 2014. So now we're five more years down the journey. And I retired four years ago. But, you know, if 10 years from now, the carbon footprint of beef has been reduced by half or 75%, I would be just busting with joy. And that's, that is my vision, by the way. And I would say that that's transformative. Now, another person, my friend who is a, uh, uh, anti-meat. He says, well, you guys should just remove beef from the menu. And uh, yeah, that's a big change, isn't it? So that's, <laughs> that's a big change. And that makes a big statement. That's an understatement. Yeah, that would be. And that, that's yeah. probably, I'm projecting onto you what I think you're thinking. Why not get rid of beef? You know, you serve Happy Meals. I thought when McDonald's changed the Happy Meal to take soda off the menu, soda is no longer a default, you know, the default is milk or juice. We reduced the French fries to uh, 100 calories. We said that every meal is going to get a piece of fruit. To me, that was like unbelievable that McDonald's would do this. I mean, I was just like, this is so awesome. Because all the experts said what McDonald's should do, you are into kids and families. You, you can't change adult eating habits, but you can change kids. So I would say, hey, 
that's pretty good for McDonald's. But, uh, you know, other people would say, hey, you know, it should be, uh, I, I don't know, all organic food and uh, you shouldn't have any toys that are just disposable. So there is some, there is always some other state, perhaps, of nirvana that is possible that you're referring to. So I don't know. I would say we made some transformative changes. We, we changed packaging. We changed animal welfare. We changed uh, the, the Amazon a little bit. We're trying hard on beef. There's no doubt that uh, some of it, some of the things we did are, I think it's reactionary and incrementalism as well. It's a, it's a mixture. But, you know, companies should work on its biggest impacts. And I, I think for for McDonald's, for the, the person that succeeded me, the head, of, the head of sustainability at McDonald's today is also a head of supply chain. Francesca DiBiase is a, a fantastic leader. And when she talks about what her priorities are for the company on sustainability, she says it's sustainable beef, it's sustainable beef, and it's sustainable beef, because that's what a lot of people have told us to work on. I acknowledge the challenge here. I mean, when you say we change from putting soda in Happy Meals to putting milk and juice in Happy Meals. My view on juice is that it's nutritionally basically the same as soda. And humans only drank water for most of our existence. So to me, I'm like, yes, it's a change. It doesn't see, from my view, it doesn't seem like that much of a change. On the other hand, if that change, once you make that change, then maybe other changes are possible. Because I can certainly imagine a McDonald's of the future that people then would look back at what you said and said, yeah, he got us started, but we have done so much more. Like he, there's no way you could envision those things. I, that's what gets me going. That's what, like, I believe that much bigger changes are possible and that everyone, that people will look at this the way that, I don't know, I can't think of a, a comparison off, off the top of my head, but they would look at what you did. No offense, but it's small potatoes. I agree. You know, you, you got to start, you know, you got to start a pathway and, uh, this beef thing, it wouldn't surprise me that down the road, I'm, I'm talking 10, 10 years down the road, is my, there's no more hormones you know, injected in there. There's no more antibiotics you know, put into beef and uh, you know, things are you know, more organic, et cetera. I mean, I, but if you, start, if you try to start at some state of nirvana, very rarely does that happen, Josh. You've know, you got to start at some point in time that is significant and start the ball rolling. Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodek.com slash podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable, join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. I'm going to transition here to talking about more about the environment in, in general. It seems to be something that you are genuinely, it's not like you're faking this. You, and actually, you're not at McDonald's now, so it's not like, but even then, when you think about the environment, what does the environment mean to you? I mean, interpreting it however makes sense to you. You know, that we should all be respectful and responsible. I mean, that's where I begin with almost everything is, uh, you know, holding everything in deep respect and being very responsible in our actions. And uh, my ethic is very conserving. So I come from more of a conserving viewpoint. It's like, why should we waste, you know, things? And we should just be responsible. When I see, I mean, I still see it today. Somebody, I'm driving, I mean, I saw it about a week ago. Somebody just threw out a McDonald's bag onto the street while driving a car and all the stuff in the bag went all over the place on the street. I go, how could somebody do that? 
Like what makes them take that action to litter like that? So uh, now being part of a company, you know, I think, uh, you know, my philosophy was that we, environment should be, uh, I always said, broadly speaking, sustainability should have a seat at the table. So that was my philosophy in my work at McDonald's. It's not that uh, the environment's not number one because it's not going to be number one. You're, you're in a for-profit business. But the environment and sustainability should have a seat at the table. It should be part of the mindset of all the leaders. And it should be a part of the decision-making process. And I was always very happy that when we did that. So if we evaluated things, and we ended up doing you know, so we would always know what the uh, environmental impact of something was. We would look at environmental options to make it better. And I think that's being a good environmentalist is, is having awareness, having the knowledge, and then uh, acting upon it, you know, both as an individual and uh, as a company. But I also, you know, view that uh, sustainability is also being uh, happy and having a fulfilled life. And uh, so, you know, I don't think I'm very against, you know, believe me, I, I've been in this movement for a long time. And when I was first going to all these meetings and I would go to kind of I try to learn more about sustainability. A lot of the people teaching it were I always call them I always call them doomsdayers. You know, the world's falling apart, blah, blah, blah. You know, they throw a lot of guilt at you. And then they said, okay, we need to do something about it. That always turned me off. And I, I just I think that approach doesn't work. And uh I don't still don't think it works. You know, not that I don't disagree that there's these big problems in the world. But I don't think you're going to get people to move upon them unless you're uh, positive, optimistic, cheerful, praise the people that do good things, you know, take three steps forward while you're taking two steps backward. I mean, that's just the way things happen. Uh, I'm against doomsday. And a lot of people in the environmental community, I have to say historically, are of that ilk. And I think the environmental movement should be much, much more of a, a hope, optimism, cheer, enthusiasm. So I heard a lot of a big wealth of what the environment means to you. I mean, you start off with talking about respect and you took a very practical of like, what do we actually do? And, and you put off by the doom and gloom as am I and more practical, more effective is, is to be cheerful and, and, and supportive. I'm also curious, a lot of that was like what to do about it. When you think about the environment, what do you think about? I mean, if, if, if people are like, you don't like waste, you don't like people throwing stuff out, that implied to me there's an undercurrent of what's worth not wasting or what does the waste mess up? And I'm curious if that is, is that something that enters in as well? Like, what do you conjure up? What do you think of when you think environment? It's different for everyone. Are you speaking for me at an individual level? or? Is oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, Bob. You, Bob, not McDonald's. Yeah. Yeah. You know. I just start, I start out from a, a viewpoint of uh, saying we should be living on a wonderful earth that's full of uh, beauty. And I start out with uh, nature. And I, I see, I like to see the beauty in the world, not the ugliness of the world. And I like to see the, the forests and the oceans and the lakes. And uh, uh, there's a segment, I'm not sure if you watch CBS Sunday morning, as I do. It's one of the greatest shows on TV because it's a very positive issue showing people doing good things. They end the show with this two minutes of nature and all you are is sitting there watching the show. There's no human beings. There's no handmade structures. And all you're doing is observing nature. That's probably the other place where I start is we got to keep this world the best we can. Uh, beautiful for everybody in the future. I have six grandkids. So I think differently about it today than I did, you know, 40 years ago. I, 
I worry that my kids maybe will see an earth that is uglier than it has been in the past. So, yeah, I think probably nature is is a big part of it. So when I see that litter go on the street, I I view that as as a person just taking a, like they're throwing pollution into the earth. It's like, how could you do that? (laughs) Your example, the water bottle, we were, believe me, at McDonald's, we would work very hard to, to have the, you know, the pictures of the water and the, and the water containers, you know, and, and glasses versus disposables, because that's the mindset you want to have rather than taking, you know, every little bad action takes something that's taking the earth into a bad place. So that's part of how I think uh, about it. You know, I have to, I have to comment here that I've interviewed, I've had hundreds of these conversations and I've said to many people, one of the things I like most about is the answer to this question of what the environment means to people. And part of the reason I love it so much is that the answers are so different. And when I began, I thought everyone is going to have the same answer as mine. And what's your answer? (laughs) The reason I mention this is that yours is actually probably the closest to what I would say myself of all the people I've spoken to so far, that to me, it's about the, there's a beauty, an aesthetic beauty that, you know, in my historically, one of the major reasons why I went into physics was to, learn about nature. I believe that that beauty was at deeper and deeper levels. And I was always finding more and more beauty. Same with mathematics. That's an aside, but I always thought it was beautiful. And that litter, if I really work at it in some philosophical sense, I can see the beauty in anything and I can find beauty in litter and pollution. But there's something also that I feel like something hardwired in us that like blue skies and a bubbling brook and green leaves on trees. There's a beauty there that like, you don't have to work at that one. It's pretty clear. Like or biting into a ripe piece of fruit, that's really delicious. And, you know, not to take away a lot of other people, it's they, they grew up on the water and spending time on a boat is something that for them or camping with their grandparents, or sometimes it's some dystopic future that really gets them scared or something like that. You know, sometimes it's a future, sometimes it's past, sometimes it's family or friends, sometimes it's the park with their dogs. And of all of them that yours, I was like, ah, that's like, I, that's how, almost like how I describe it. So I couldn't help but comment on that. And uh, what I also do with guests is I invite them at their options. I invite you at your option, given how you view the world and what it means to you, to do something that you haven't already done, uh, to act on that. It's not to try to fix all the world's problems. It's not to save the world. It's about for you doing something that you value, uh, but it can't be something you're already doing. And it can't be telling other people or paying other people to do something because there's enough people telling other people what to do. And this is about personal doing something yourself to act on your values. And then if you decline, that's fine. If you choose to do it, then to share the experience after you've done it. I'll take you up on that. I'm a big believer of uh, leading, leading by example. You know, one of the biggest things that struck me in my, my own personal growth, I heard this phrase kind of early on in my career about the shadow of a leader. And, uh, I think it's really, really, really important. Uh, people look at leaders and what they do and what behaviors they, they take. And so, yeah, I, I, like to, I like to keep expanding. So i got to figure that out, Josh. I'll take it on. Cool. Yeah, I, I'll comment on what you just said, that uh, what, what companies are telling me when they come to me is that we try to do something as a company, but if our leaders aren't doing it, then people accuse us of greenwashing. And so you talk to people on your podcast and, and have them share change. And that's authentic. And in my experience, 
leading by example isn't that isn't that effective in the environment? Because I was doing things that I thought would set great examples, and people are like, oh, that's great. You keep doing that. I'll do what I do. I think unleading by unexample. If you don't do it, it's very difficult. People will say, well, you're not doing it. I'm not going to do it. So it's more like it kind of vetoes things if you don't do it. But if you do it, you still need a lot of leadership on top of that. Yeah, I was just at a big, I gave a big speech last week at the uh, University of Virginia Garden School of Business. It was very hectic. I had a lot on my mind. And uh, the, uh, I had a can of soda. Okay, so yes, they served me. I had a can of soda in my hand. And I had finished it. And it was very easy for me. I, there was no recycling bin nearby. So I looked around. I go, man, I'm busy. I got to get to my next thing. But you know what? I said to myself, I got a, the, the shadow of a leader. So I asked the person, where, where can I recycle this? And it took me an extra minute <laughs> to find it. But it made me feel good that I did that. Because if you didn't do that, what are all the people watching you? Here's a person that just gave a speech about being a leader. And I'm throwing an aluminum can into the garbage bin. I don't want to do that. What, what signal does that say to everybody that's watching me? And I think that happens more than we think with a lot of leaders. And a big reason why I ask people to do this and to share it is so that people listening, I think there's a lot of the following in the world. If I act, but no one else does, then what I do doesn't matter. But if they see that they're not the only ones doing it, especially if leaders are doing things, actually people who do things are becoming the leaders because I think if, if you're acting in your values and other people aren't, but they share those values, you're becoming the leader. Well, also what I've learned over time at McDonald's, we said it takes 10 positive things to say to overcome one negative. I just learned last week at the, the Darden School of Management that it takes five positive actions to overcome one negative action. So uh, negativity is a lot of power, unfortunately. I mean, why, why do political campaigns have all this negativity? Because they work. Mm-hmm. So we have to outnumber them. I'm all, all on board. We have to outnumber this because positiveness sh- should win out but you need more of it. (laughs) So some people, what I invite them, a lot of people have something in their minds that like they've been meaning for a while to, you know, I've been meaning for a while to cut X out or to do more of Y. Some people, they haven't thought of something and we go back and forth a couple of times to help draw out something that they can do. I wonder, is there anything that, that has been on your mind about that? Oh, I've been meaning to, do this thing and this might be the opportunity to do it? Because I'd like to get something in the course of this call. Now you're really challenging me right on the spot, huh? Well, that's, I hope you don't feel too much on the spot, but partly I think that's valuable for the listeners because the listeners can have different values. And if they want to do something themselves, I think, well, they're going to have to act on something from their values. So if we have a bit of back and forth, I think that helps the listeners well, because it's not necessarily the case that they have something on their mind either. So, and you're not a, a you're not in a small minority on this that uh, a lot of other people have also been like, I'm not really sure. Well, you know, where my mind first goes, uh, it goes less to what individual action I could take. It goes more into uh, what I could do to uh, be part of something. So, I mean, that's kind of where my mind goes. I mean, uh, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm retired now and you, you can't get comfortable in that space. I just written a book, you know, you're busy. I got a nice family that I love very much. But I am looking for a way to uh, make an impact where I can maybe get involved with something. I'm not sure what it is yet, Josh. I'll have to look at it. But I would want to, because uh, I don't feel many, I think more people need to get into this environmental movement of well, some sort. So, sorry to interrupt. I, I didn't mention one other thing. 
is that I also ask that it be something with a measurable difference. So, because a lot of people say, I'm going to raise my awareness, I'm going to raise my consciousness, I'm going to educate. And that's all fine and well. And I would not stop people from doing that. But I'm looking for something that is. So, what I'm thinking about is yeah, maybe I organize a cleanup somewhere uh-huh. here in my community. Yeah, that would definitely fit all yeah. the criteria at my yeah. end. Get, get 10 or 20 people. Like, what I want to do is bring other people along too, you know. And uh, so, yeah, that's how I start thinking. I want to do something like that. Yeah, that would be great. Because I think that, first of all, you start thinking of people as a resource that you can work with as opposed to something that's like, oh, but other people, what are they going to think or something like that? And I love, personally, I love that way of thinking because I think it is all the causes of these environmental issues are our behavior and that's people and that's leadership. That's my personal bias. And I feel like you aren't quite sure yet what you would organize them to clean up and how big it would be or where it would be or when it would be. But I wonder if we could, I always like to make a smart goal, you know, specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, and time-based. And I wonder if you could say within a certain period and specify a bit, and I don't want to constrain you too much, but I find that that helps people because if you just say, I'm going to do a cleanup at some point in some time, it's very easy to not, for that not to happen. I'll do something by June 1st of this year. Okay. To make a difference with others. That's, that will create less, less pollution, and more beauty in nature. Okay. That's, just, that's where I start right now. And... Would it be, are you, so could we schedule a second conversation Yeah, shortly sure. after June 1st to hear how it went? Absolutely. Okay. And is it, I, I want to make sure you're not doing this like, like I'm doing this because Josh told me to. If it is, then that's, uh, I don't, I'd prefer to undo it, but, or is it something that, are you doing it for me, for yourself? I'm doing it because you spurred me on and I, I want to agree to something that I don't want to do. Uh, you know, uh, I, I believe in doing things that uh, come from, that are authentic to me. So no, I'm, I want to make in what I choose to do now in my lifestyle. I want to uh, have fun. I want to have flexibility. But most importantly, I want to make a difference in the world. So I, I'm looking for avenues to make a difference. So this, this sounds like a good one to me. Okay, cool. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that. Cause I was a little worried for a second. <laughs> and I think actually now we're approaching an hour, so I, I'll wrap up, but I'd like to wrap up with two questions. One is, is there anything I didn't think to ask that you would like to bring up or is worth bringing up? We covered a lot of ground, Josh. So yeah. I'm happy. I'm happy. Uh, I'm happy with the interview. Thank you. And is there anything you want to say directly to listeners that didn't come out? Uh, you know, perhaps the, I like to encourage them to read my book. I really do. I mean, I, I didn't write the book uh, for myself, you know, so I, uh, I haven't made a strong pitch for the book yet on your show and I'll just go for it. Yeah. I really do think that you'll learn a lot. At a minimum, you'll learn a lot. I think you'll be uh, raising your eyebrows a lot as to what you learn in the book. And uh, I think you'll understand what happens behind big companies and big brands. And by the way, there's a lot of uh, NGOs are in the book and how they think. And uh, I think the book can help leaders that are, if there's listeners that are in the organizational space, looking for ideas to how to lead. My book is not technical. It's not academic. I have these little hard knock nuggets at the end of each chapter that kind of fit that bill a little bit. But the core of the whole book is telling you stories. And I I think the best, the way I learned was through watching others, what they did, either right or wrong. And uh, I think this book could help you on your leadership journey. Bob Langert, thank you very much. You're welcome. Bob spoke mostly about corporate change, 
My goal is to foster personal change among influential people, so I was glad to see his taking on a personal commitment. With all my issues of avoiding packaging, obesity, avoiding meat, avoiding fossil fuel burning vehicles, and so on, it felt funny not pursuing those angles. But I only just met the man, and he's not at McDonald's now anyway. I'm interested in what change is possible. I'm more interested in learning the territory, and I think in the long run it will pay off. And I got to see a picture reading the book and talking to the man about McDonald's and their change. I think there's a lot of potential for greater change, and it sounds like he's open for that too, not that he's there anymore. But we'll see how it goes with his personal commitment when we talk again, and we'll see how his personal commitment leads to personal change in himself, if any, and maybe they'll open some doors into seeing some change in McDonald's. Did you feel inspired too? Then act. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others. Value means better and worse, and living by your values means living better by your values. You may struggle at first, but it's the hero's journey from living by others' values to living by yours. People say that little things add up. I won't argue against it, but what I find counts is acting. Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering I can make a difference and living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.